Our episodes contain graphic information that may not be suitable for all audiences. Listener discretion is advised. Would you like some murder with your coffee? Welcome to season two of Morning Murders. I'm Nicole. I'm Amanda. And I'm Brenna. We're just three gals that like to sit around, drink coffee, talk mm. about true crime, mm-hmm. and come back for a second season. Second season. Second season. Second season. The second sipping. Yes. The second sipping. I know you just listened to all of it yesterday. We know you just re caught up with all the stuff that you missed. And now you're ready for season two. Season two. Season two. We're so excited to be back, and we missed you guys so much. Yes. Missed you, Beans. What, yeah. What'd you do? You did be? you take us on a road trip with you? Where'd oh, we go? Where did we go? Where did we go? Did what we did go? you drink while you listened to us? Yeah. What yeah. you? What crafts did you make while you listened to us? We want to know. We want to know. Tell How are we a part it. of your world? We're so excited to be back. We have such an exciting season coming for you guys, and we can't wait to share all the things with you. Um, maybe we'll have some guests on here. Ooh. Who knows? Um, we also have our awesome merch store, right, Brenna? Yes, we did start a merch store on Teespring. Um, that link will be in the show notes. It's mm-hmm. also on all of our things. I, I try we I try to keep it in all the show notes for the shows from here on in season two. Sorry, <laughs> we had it at the end of season one. They're everywhere, so look for it. We got t-shirts and mugs. Yes, and for more updates, check us out on our Instagram page at Morning Murders, and we'll keep you guys updated there too. But let's get back into these stories. I'm so excited to be here back in the breakfast nook with you, ladies. Yay! Yes. And I'm sipping on some coffee that Nicole made us I today. And you are the coffee Nicole. witch. I'm the coffee, coffee witch. Yeah. And our fun fancy mugs, because I have so many mugs. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yes. I oh. think I think that's a common thing that a lot of even coffee aficionados, but tea people, like, they uh, tell us your favorite, what's your favorite mug? That's a good one. If anyone has any of their favorite mugs, favorite mugs. show us your favorite mm-hmm. mug and tell us why. Yeah, please send us pictures of your mugs. I'm yeah, mug obsessed. Send us a picture. Literally, I'm obsessed. Mm-hmm. Um, I'll share all my mugs if you share yours. Yeah. <laughs> show us yours and we'll show you. Show us your mugs. Show us your mugs. Show us your mug shots. Your juicy mugs. Yeah, mug shots. Mug mug shots. There's the hashtag. Hashtag mug shots. Oh, well, my ladies, my beans, it's a wonderful day to talk about something terrible. Mm. So grab your favorite mug and settle in, because this one might make you think twice about where you go for medical care. Ladies and beans, have you ever heard of Harold Frederick Shipman? So, I have a friend named Derek Shipman, and he's a really nice man. Yeah, oh, he's a this cool is dude. not that person. Well, thank God. <laughs> you got away this time, Derek. <laughs> you got away this time. Well, Harold Frederick Shipman was also known as Dr. Death. And what was his oh. poison? Well, poison. <laughs> yep. uh, before we get into that, though, let's journey to Nottingham, England. Harold Frederick Shipman, or Fred, or Freddie, as his mother would call him, was born January 14th, 1946. He was the middle of three children. He had an older sister named Pauline and a younger brother named Clive, according to a documentary series called Born to Kill, Season 1, Episode 2. 
he was not only the middle child, which uh, comes with its own set of issues, which I know, speaking as a middle child myself, um, but he was also knowingly his mother Vera's favorite child. She was very vocal about how much he was her favorite. So she really, how many siblings did he have? He had two other siblings. Right. Mm-hmm. No one cares. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> I see what you did there. I see, yeah. I see what you did. That's mm. unfortunate. Anyway. Yeah. So Pauline dropped out of school early, and Clive was known to not be as bright as Freddie. So she basically groomed him to be special. She always told him how special he was. She also picked who he could hang out with because she wanted him to be seen in a certain light above everyone else, if you will. Two friends that spoke on the series were Bob and Mike. Uh, The men spoke about what it was like being his friend, and they all weren't very close. He didn't really get close to anyone. You always remember all those, like, dances we had to go to growing up, like, in school, you know, like Sadie Hawkins and Homecoming, all Mm -hmm. those crazy blah, blah, blah. Well, his school had those dances, too, but he would bring his sister, and they would dance together. And the guy said it was pretty awkward for multiple reasons, Uh, one being she was a lot taller than he was. Mm. <laughs> Can't have incest at the cotillion. Ooh, oh mm. dear. <laughs> no. <laughs> uh, so as he grew up, it was difficult for him to actually form his own personality. With the pressure from his mom to be a certain way and focusing on doing better than his peers in school, he basically just created an act that he would put on. This is how I'm supposed to act. We talked about similar ideas in season one with Ted Bundy. Yes. yes. Yep. Yeah. So he never had a difficult experience with anyone growing up because he didn't create difficult situations. He just blended in Mm -hmm. and just appeased to everyone. Uh, He never really talked to anyone about personal things or family matters. His mother was terminally ill with lung cancer and his friends didn't know until one Monday morning when he was walking to school, Mike asked him how his weekend was and he was like, my mom died. (laughs) The truth was... What a bummer. Bummer. (laughs) What a bummer. The truth was actually a lot heavier than just that. Not only did his mom die of a terrible, terrible thing, but for the entire time that she was ill, the family GP, the general practitioner, would come over and give her injections of morphine. And Freddie would be there the whole time. While the injections were happening, he'd sit there with her. Up until the very last one when she let go and died on June 21st, 1963. That's terrible. I know. It's really awful. And how did he deal with this grief? Well, first, he felt that feeling of relief that comes when someone you've been caring for and been by the side of one who's been sick for a long time died. So that's followed by this horrible guilty feeling. So he kind of skipped the guilty part, though, and just went running. And he ran for miles after his mom died. The following Monday was a very awkward walk to school, Mike recalled. And he and Bob both said that he was acting strange. He was acting off. But that comes from what they believe growing up thinking someone should act like when they grieve, what they should look like, right? We all kind of have this idea of what someone should do when they're grieving, and Freddie didn't do that. Um, So I typically don't hold comments like that too much because we all kind of have a different experience in that. Just because someone doesn't do it the way you think they should doesn't mean that it's not normal. It just means it's different. Yeah, and a lot of times the the reactions that we see are just what we saw in movies and television. Like, they were written. Like, mm-hmm. they weren't genuine reactions. They were just what someone wrote at the time for whatever effect, you yeah, know? Yeah, exactly. We've got to look at evidence. There's got to be more to it than just, he was acting weird. Or uh, that thing we were watching earlier, his eyes said that he he was fine. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> look for evidence. Anyways, yeah. I digress. <laughs> so, after his mother died and he watched her die, he suddenly wanted to become a doctor. 
he had never once showed any interest in the medical field until after his mother died and he spent all that time with her, watching her get injection after injection and finally dying. Since he was mostly a solid student, only a few hiccups here and there, he eventually made it into Leeds Medical. It was touch and go there for a bit, and his friends were doing really well, and he couldn't seem to get ahead for a bit, but he didn't let it stay that way for long. Criminologist Christopher Barry D. talks about how serial killers often find themselves competing with their peers. They long to be more successful than those around them. Maybe to prove something. I don't know. I'm normal, damn it! I'm more normal than you! Ah, I'm gonna mm. prove it. Who knows? Uh, anyway, so now he was in med school to save or to hold the godlike power. How freaky is that to think about? Folks in the medical field have the power to save you or kill you. Thankfully, we have more heroes than villains. But alas, this is not a hero's tale. On his bus rides into school, he met a girl named Primrose, and they hit it off. She was pregnant six months after they met, and they did get married, but it was a rushed and hush-hush kind of event. There weren't even any photos of it. Um, it did not derail his school, though, and they even had a second child. Uh, he graduated from Lee's School of Medicine in 1970, and once he started implementing what he learned into the real world, the trouble started. His first gig was at uh, Point Fract General Infirmary in Point Fract West Riding of Yorkshire. Man, everything in England sounds so epic and, like, noble. It's <laughs> riding of Yorkshire. Uh, so cool. <laughs> Anyways. Right, <laughs> right. <laughs> I think they also have Snottinghamshire and stuff oh, like that, too. Yes. Snottingham. Snottinghamshire. He was treating a very ill four-year-old girl, and their mother stepped out of the room to go get a coffee or something, and she said, please be kind to her. And he took that as permission to basically euthanize this <gasps> helpless little girl. In his mind, he was saving her, giving her peace. But the reality is that she was alone in that room with him and her mother had no idea what was going on. And that would be the last time that she would see her daughter. Ugh. <laughs> but nothing became of it. Nothing happened. There was no suspicious activity. Nobody thought anything of it. Onward and upward for Harold Freddy. He began to work at Abraham Omrod Medical Center in Todd Mortem in 1973 under Dr. Michael Grieve, who is the senior GP. At this facility, patients actually got to pick their doctors. They would pick who they liked best and they would stick with them. Freddie had a rather large following. When he came to this facility, everyone was so grateful. Nothing but high praise. He brought all the latest techniques. He was basically the answer to their prayers. Illness had been winning until Harold Freddie Shipman showed up to save the day. He did things a little different, though. He wouldn't let any of the nurses do injections or draw blood. Mm. He did all of that on his own. And he was kind of testing the waters and finding ways to kill his patients under the radar. <laughs> one day he had three patients die and no one batted an eye. Ooh, okay. Okay. But it was in it was in a facility like a like you were saying hospice. Mm. Like okay. So <laughs> it wasn't until a nurse brought his drug addiction to light in 1975 oh. that Dr. Michael Grieve started to notice more things. Freddie was pretty manic as a person, and turns out he was using pethidine. Once they looked into his prescription writing history, they realized that he'd been prescribing pethidine for personal use. When Freddie was confronted about it, he freaked out, got super defensive, and when Dr. Michael Grieve asked him why he was taking it, Freddie brought up this line about how, you shouldn't give your patients anything that you haven't tried. What? <laughs> yeah, sure. Yeah, a little bit for you. I'm going to take one for you, one for me. <laughs> It's like 
Dr. Spichemin on 30 Rock. Yeah, but he's like, you want some bluesies? Interesting. Yes, some bluesies. (laughs) I got a couple greens and a yellow. That's intense. That kind of also reminds me of, like, the the Bhagwan, the Osho, that that, uh, yogi guy that had the cults in Mm. Oregon, Mm. who, like, notably had... uh, like the the happy gas, the stuff that Ooh. like the nitrous oxide, like or whatever it was, he used that like bat like all the time, and he oh. would just that was. I mean, I don't think he was a doctor in any way, but for some reason, somebody would give him that stuff. Like, oh, Douglas, thank you, it's my ha- my happy my happy gas. Yeah, that's that's intense. So obviously, he was aware of like the dosages that he was giving other people. Oh, very aware. But then with him, he's only giving himself enough just to get high and get like. That's interesting. Yes. So he's um, aware. Very aware. Oh, he's very aware of what doses of everything that he's using and doing. He's very good at it. Um, and because of uh, his, your special growing up style, he truly believed he was above everyone. But he was forced out of the practice and attended a drug rehab. And he was slapped with a fine for misusing his doctor powers. Want to guess how much? In pounds, mind you. How many pounds do you think he was charged? Probably not enough. No. Yeah. <laughs> well, let's see. At the time, the pound was what? <laughs> no, I don't know. Uh, s- 75,000 pounds. 75,000 pounds. Brandon, give me a guess. 20 pounds. 20 pounds. <laughs> I'm going low. <laughs> I was like, that was what I was Yeah. <laughs> Got high and low. So 600 pounds, which is not crazy. <laughs> it's roughly about $814. Yeah, that's really nothing. That, that doesn't, like, stop a person practicing at oh, all. Oh, not at all. Interesting. Oh, no. He did small jobs after he got out of rehab. He played the, I'm a changed man. I would never do anything like that again. I was in a weird place, blah, 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 blah. <laughs> and people believed him. He worked as a medical officer for Hatfield College, Durham, and for a brief time worked for the National Coal Board, Finally, in 1977, he became the GP at the Donnybrook Medical Center in Hyde, Greater Manchester. Ladies and beans, grab your mugs, because here come the murders. Oh, shit. First murder of the season. So in Hyde, he felt like a free man. It was a much smaller population, and he was really good at being the version of himself that he needed to be for any group of people. Uh, he was socially accepted, he was friendly and kind, and everybody loved him. And he was basically the only doctor. <laughs> so he was like the guy to go to in Hyde. Oh, okay. He was playing Dr. God now. He worked as a general practitioner throughout the 1980s, and he opened up his own surgery establishment on Market Street in 1993. Dr. David H. Holmes, a criminologist and forensic profiler, said, The very remarkable nature of his case is the fact that he was not remarkable. People would say things like, He can't be a killer because he's just like us, which made it easier for him to kill hundreds without anyone blinking an eye. Mm -hmm. Uh, When he was finally under investigation, they compared his paperwork to other doctors, and there were major differences. The rate and time of his victim type dying, and what time they would often be found when they died, and he always had to be present, and he always did the paperwork himself. It was all very strange. So, who were his victims? He had a very specific type. The only exception that we know of was the four-year-old girl that I mentioned earlier, but children weren't typically his victim of choice. He murdered elderly women most of whom who lived alone and he made house calls to. When one of his elderly patients passed away, they would always find them in a similar way, dressed very nicely, sitting in a chair or on the couch, and at the age where people weren't too surprised that they had died. Now, he did all the paperwork and he would write that he did a full external examination and would always say that each victim had some heart condition that really had never come up before. 
Some he would even accuse of being drug addicts, heroin specifically, and he would encourage the families to get cremations. Now, all of that is odd, and the part about them being dressed nice after he supposedly did a full external examination puzzled those few folks who started to get suspicious. Yeah. Not typical. Yeah, no. I was just like, well, then why are they dressed nice? And I'm well, literally like... I've already got a whole theory on all of this. Yeah, okay. <laughs> when do you want it? I, I'm Not ready. yet. Okay. I want to see if it's... Okay. To, if, when, it, when the thing comes up, I want you to tell me if I'm that's like, what you thought. I'm like, do I write it down? And it's one of those moments, like, I open the envelope. <laughs> and it's like, I knew it. I fucking knew it. This is it. All right. Yeah, to do a full external examination the clothing is supposed to be removed yeah yeah so you would have obviously had to move the body do all, mm. all kinds of stuff was he doing things with those bodies <laughs> was he having sex with those oh, bodies no 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 he wasn't he wasn't doing that that's <laughs> not what's happening that's not like, what i was oh, getting at no no. Yeah. no that's not what happened of course i, I was, gonna, I was ease like your brain no. right there no 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 because no. everyone's fully clothed nothing was nothing was a mess like that's what made them go this is weird because you said you did this thing but you would have had to do this thing and it doesn't look like you did that thing yeah so some people in town would say that he was a good doctor, but a lot of old ladies have turned up dead. Hmm. They even coined him Dr. Death before the police successfully investigated him. Now, I say successfully because it was not the first time they investigated him when he finally got caught. Yeah. The first time alarms went off was because of Dr. Linda Reynolds of the Brook Surgery in Hyde. Uh, Deborah Macy from the funeral parlor, uh, it was Frank Massey and Sons who, where she worked, she told her that she was concerned about something going on. So Linda went to John Pollard, who was the coroner for the South Manchester District. The death rate in Harold Frederick Shipman was shockingly high, and the number of cremations in his elderly women patients was also very high. At this time, she wasn't sure if it was on purpose or just negligence, but she knew something was going on with the good doctor. Uh, this was brought to the police and the investigation opened. However, they didn't find anything. Though one could argue that they didn't look very hard at this time. Uh, the police officers on the case went to Linda and warned her not to tell lies about Dr. Shipman and to be careful. He was a well-respected man in the community. Yikes. I know. Oof. So big dur- oof. I know, big oof. Point a big egg on their face. Yeah. <laughs> uh, during the time of the first investigation, which was April 17th, 1998, and when he was finally arrested on September 7th, 1998, Freddie killed three more people. And some believe he was trying to get caught towards the end. Others feel like he thought he was God and literally couldn't get caught. Regardless of which is true, he got caught. Uh, it was with his last victim that he made some extra errors. Kathleen Grundy, uh, who was even a former ceremonial mayor of Hyde, was found dead in her home. It was June 24th, 1998. Harold Freddie Shipman was the last person to see her alive, like all of his former victims. But that wasn't all. There was a will found that raised a lot of questions. God damn it, guys. The will left... 386,000 pounds hmm. to Dr. Shipman and Ooh. nothing to her children. Wow, surprise, surprise, mm-hmm. surprise. It was taken to the police and the investigation was opened. They also found Freddie's fingerprints on the will itself. And the typewriter used was his own. Duh. And he was like, oh, he later claimed that she borrowed it since she didn't have one of her own. Mm. Cool. So Kathleen Yikes. Grundy's body was exhumed, and when the autopsy was done, they found trace amounts of diamorphine, which is often used as a pain relief for cancer patients, 
and also heroin. Mm. Uh, This victim specifically, he tried to claim, was an addict. He just started grabbing for things to try to save himself because now everything was about to unravel. He forged other wills on that typewriter. They discovered the false information he was putting in patients' paperwork and realized that his patient death rate was a lot and very specific. Elderly ladies. They found a list of 15 they connected as murders. He was arrested on September 7th, 1998. They found another pattern in the deaths. They all had lethal amounts of diamorphine in their systems. He signed the patient death certificates and forged the medical records to reflect poor health conditions, especially involving the heart. Now, the way these elderly women were killed is exactly how his mother's last moment was. That's what I was going I to say. So. I was like, guys, let's talk about the fact that he watched his mother die. He's doing the exact same thing. It's yeah. only elderly women. Mm-hmm. He is dressing them because that's like a thing with killers where they have some type of connection or they feel bad. They dress the victim, but also I bet his mother probably maybe wore something similar to it. And mm-hmm. so he was trying to relive that moment over and over Dude. Yeah. <laughs> Call yeah. it. So, wow. Yeah, except the, she actually died of lung cancer, not diamorphine. But, yeah, you know. but, I mean, but he watched her, like, get he these sure injections, mm-hmm. and it just put a different, like, I don't know, psychosis in there. Yeah, yeah, that's so interesting, because obviously, like, she was being put, like, in a position of, a, like, a peaceful death. Mm-hmm. So, like, there is, like, a weird, interesting thing about him trying to be merciful there, but... Well, maybe because he, he, choose. he couldn't help his mom. Yeah. So he's helping these women because he but couldn't But also taking their mom. money. Well, I mean, yeah, you gotta... So it's I whatever. have another thing. Okay, oh! so we'll get there. We'll get <laughs> wait, did there. Did he ever... Wait. Did he end up getting uh, something from his mom's death? Getting something? Yeah, like, did was he in the will when his mom died? Oh, there wasn't anything abnormal. I think, like, they all got okay, stuff. because like, if it, it was, was a never... thing where he, like, and then he never got anything from that. Oh, no, so there like wasn't a... anything. There's no red flags as far as her will and stuff goes okay. in that family. But so the chief coroner, John, spoke in the documentary series and said that diamorphine was also a mistake. If Shipman didn't want to get caught, he could have used a number of other substances that would have gone undetected which is terrifying. Mm. Uh, John wonders if Freddie Shipman was not very clever or trying to get caught the whole time. By the time he was actually caught, he had actually killed 283 people. No, yeesh. <laughs> Woof. So let's talk about the trial. <laughs> okay. So oh he was God. not charged with the entire 283 murders at first. It was 15. Marie West, who was 81. Irene Turner, who was 67. Lizzie Adams, 77, Jean Lilly, who's 59, Ivy Lomas, 63, Muriel Grimshaw, 76, Marie Quinn, 67, Kathleen Wagstaff, 81, uh, Bianca Pomfret, 49, Nora Nottall, 64, Pamela Hillier, 68, Marilyn Ward, 57, Winifred Mellor, 73, Joan Mila, 73, and Kathleen Grundy, 81. All of these women, many of whom I would not even classify as elderly necessarily, yeah. died between 1995 and 1998. Jesus, yeah. So most, a lot of these women were not even of the, like, an age that you would mm-hmm. expect. And, God, their whole families. Mm-hmm. Like, you know, when, that, when somebody like that dies, presumably, like, matriarch-style age of a person, mm-hmm. that affects everybody. That's oh, yeah. tough. Those poor families. Yeah. 215, of course, but then, like, later, those 200-something oh, people. It just unravels. So it Yeesh. took six days for the jury to deliberate, and on January 31st, 2000, he was found guilty. Guilty of murdering 15 women by lethal injection of diamorphine and forging the will of Kathleen Grundy. 
He was given 15 consecutive life sentences, and the judge even threw in that he recommended Harold Frederick Shipman never be released. Nice. For the forgery, he was given an additional four years. So 15 consecutive life sentences and four more just to add the cherry on top. Hmm. Two years after his sentencing, Home Security David Bluckett confirmed the judge's recommendation only months before the British government ministries lost their power to set minimum sentences terms for prisons. So <laughs> tough luck for Shipman. <laughs> yeah, right? <laughs> Did not get lucky there. Um, it took 10 days for the General Medical Council to take Dr. Harold Frederick Shipman off the register, and it was all official on February 11th, 2000. During all this time, though, Freddie maintained his innocence. He would talk about how scientific reasons that came up that that was why they accused him, and he never admitted to guilt, ever. The Shipman inquiry concluded that Freddie probably was involved in 250 deaths that he also used drugs on recreationally. Um, though no other cases were brought to trial, in an article I read, it also said that Shipman is the only doctor in British legal history to be found guilty of killing patients. Hmm. There have been other trials with doctors, but he was the only one that's actually been found guilty. Fun fact. One of the doctors that had been brought to trial in 1957 was a doctor named Dr. John Adams. Now, a historian named Pamela Collins says that he, too, was a serial killer. He just got away with it. He may have killed up to 165 patients between 1946 and 1956, and totaling up to 450 patients after that, but he was never found guilty. The reason was that there just wasn't the right things in the right place for him to get caught. Um, so the legal system in general hadn't grown enough for him mm. to get caught yet. But... Had he been found guilty, then Shipman would have been caught a lot sooner. Some say that Dr. Adams may have been inspiration for Shipman's actions. Anyway, back to good old Harold Freddie Shipman. So he maintains his innocence the entire time. There are records of him talking to police, and he never wavers from his belief. He had a cellmate named Tony Fleming who speaks on Freddie's character. Even in the darkness of lights out in the cell, he would never reveal any secret nothing. When they were first assigned to be cellmates, Tony was actually terrified of him. All the inmates were talking about how he killed his patients, and out of fear of being another victim, in the middle of the night, Tony tried to hang himself in their cell. Freddie found him and cut him down and saved his life. And it was that moment that sealed the deal for Tony. He can't understand how someone who killed all those people would save him. Because he's not a little old lady. Exactly. So criminologists <laughs> that Christopher it's not his Barry, MO. Yeah. no. So Christopher Barry D says exactly that. That Tony just didn't fit the victimology. Hmm. He was not a patient of Shipman's. He was not an older lady, and they were not in a hospital or doing house call. Like, there's many, many levels. Well, that and like there seems to have been, and I know you're probably going to get into this more, but it seems like there was a whole thing about like choosing, uh, uh, like taking advantage of someone that's already in, like, a vulnerable position, like, mm -hmm. and it being, like, him thinking that he's not really committing murder, even though he's also putting himself in his well that's very, in their wills, which is very suspect. Oh, I think he knew he was committing murder. Right. So, yeah. But, but, like, you know, in that, that way of, like, he knew he's committing murder, but he doesn't see it as murder. I think he sees it as, like, he made the choice for them. That's probably why he, like, didn't. But if he says he's innocent the entire yeah. time, you know, it's, that's, I feel like he just kind of goes, like, well, not that he is a troubled man who saw his mom die. He fucking went, cool, I'm going to murder people now because I've seen it and I've now gotten away with it. I can't wait to tell you what they think is the reason. So, Ugh. I'll get there. So, on January 13th, 2004, this is the day before his 58th birthday, there was a small window where he was alone. Being a very skilled doctor, he knew all he needed was four minutes. 
He was found at 6.20 and was pronounced dead by 8.10. He committed suicide by hanging. He used his bed sheets and the window bars. With him, he took any confession or reason to the grave. There was a mix of anger and rejoice. Families were torn because now they'll never know why. Before he killed himself, he made sure that Primrose, his wife, was going to be okay. Because he was still under 60 years old, she received a full NHS, National Health Service, pension. John Douglas, who I love, the FBI profiler that I talk about and I love, uh, says that serial killers are always looking for a way to manipulate and be in control. Killing themselves, whether in custody or not, or even committing suicide by cop, could often be the last grab at control. Shipman had a few of his privileges taken away as an act to get him to confess. He was finally given his phone privileges back to call his wife a week before he killed himself. After his death, there was also talk about changing the terms we use when doing a whole life sentencing and perhaps using a term like indefinite sentencing, hoping that that would give some hope to prisoners like, oh, there might be an eventual release date. The goal is to prevent prison suicides Mm. um, and try to make management easier for prison officials. To me, the whole thing just needs to be redone, honestly. So after all of this, a lot of investigations um, and changes happened. A report came out that Shipman killed at least 215 patients between 1975 and 1998 while he was at Todmorden, West Yorkshire, and Hyde, Greater Manchester. There could be more. Most of the victims were elderly women who were previously in good health. In another report, it stated that three patients, maybe four others, including the four-year-old little girl, all during his time at Point Fract General Hospital, West Riding, Yorkshire, between 1971 and 1998, there were about 250 deaths, bringing the possible grand total to 459 deaths under his care. It's difficult for authorities to officially pin it all on him, however, since there's no real evidence except that he signed the death certificates. Now, the Shipman Inquiry raised questions about the structure of the General Medical Council and recommended changes so that things like this don't happen again. So the General Medical Council took action. Six doctors were charged who had signed cremation forms for Shipman's victims with misconduct, saying that they should have seen the pattern between Shipman's home patients and their deaths. They were found not guilty. Two other doctors who worked at Tamside General Hospital in 1994 were brought into a similar hearing in 2005 about Shipman's excessive, or how they put it, grossly excessive dose of morphine he would administer. His suicide also ruled as something that could not have been predicted or prevented, but it was still re-examined. When they looked further into Shipman, they found that he also stole jewelry from his victims. Yeah, so... Mm -hmm. (laughs) Jewelry was taken into custody, and only after Primrose could prove what was hers, she was given them back. So she got back about 66 pieces, and 33 of them were auctioned, and the proceeds went to Tamside Victim Support. Only one item was returned to a family, and they had to prove it was theirs, and they just happened to have a photo of it. It was this platinum diamond ring. Hmm. So a memorial garden was created to honor Harold Frederick Shipman's victims. It is in Hyde Park, and it opened on July 30th, 2005. It's called The Garden of Tranquility. And because I love a good song inspired by a serial killer, The Fall released a song called What About Us? And these are some of the lyrics. I saw a newspaper. I was not very happy. There was a man going around all the time. He was dishing out drugs. He was a doctor, dishing out morphine to old ladies. I said, what about us, Shipman? What about us, Shipman? And it goes on from there. I put the link in the show notes. Um, one of the theories about why 
he committed these murders and why he picked these victims was something I mentioned earlier. So when his mom died, he felt a sense of relief and this like euphoric feeling um, and never got the guilty feeling. And then he went on a run, which also induced more um, endorphins. endorphins. So he just got really happy. So he now connects this death of his mother with this injection of morphine to, oh my God, that makes me so happy and I feel so great. Wow, yeah. And it's so much pleasure. Mm-hmm. So that is one of the main theories is why he did that is because he's recreating that moment because he felt so great and had this like overcome amount of pleasure from this horrible thing that happened. Mm-hmm. That synapse fired at the wrong time. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, yeah, that's unfortunate for him. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and for the... 400 and something families who had somebody taken away from their lives. Yeah. And a lot of the old women, they don't think that he dressed them, but like the, especially back then, um, when you have like someone's coming over from the generation that a lot of these women Mm. grew up in, they would get all, oh, doctors coming over. So they get all nice and dressed up and maybe even make some tea and like make it a whole thing when the doctor's coming to visit. And it's just like awful. These women are just like so excited and happy and like grateful and he murders them. Mm. So that, my ladies and beans, is the story of Harold Frederick, or Freddie Shipman, Dr. Death. Any final sips? Uh, it's always really upsetting to me when, because I I have trust issues, right? Everybody does. To see somebody in a position of power, specifically in the medical field, take advantage of those who are, you know, sick or unable to help themselves, like, it just, I don't know, be better. It's kind of like the parent thing, right? Like, you're supposed to be the protector. Mm-hmm. You're supposed, you are supposed to be a love of love. You took an oath to protect and don't do it. I mean, I don't mm-hmm. know what the, what no, I'm really trying to say is just like that above all else. Like, God, it's, it's just. These women, everybody was trusting him. That's why they were able to get away with it for so long. Mm-hmm. Because you're in this position where people are supposed to be able to trust you. So please don't take away that trust. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and then it affects other people, right? So everybody right. that had to sign the cremation and the medication and all that other stuff out. It's very interesting. Have mm-hmm. you guys heard of Elizabeth Wetlaufer? She's, mm-hmm. um, she's a Canadian nurse. I was... Um, listening to a thing on that chapter about her. So she's a Canadian nurse that um, killed eight people and attempted to kill six more. Mm -hmm. Um, But she also confessed to a lot of people about it and they were like, oh, don't worry about it because she's like a sweet looking nurse lady (gasps) from Canada. So Hmm. literally she came to the police and to like her bosses a few times and said that she like gave people too much and like that she like had committed murder and she was having these feelings of like letting being the person to let people go and all this stuff and they're like just get back to work elizabeth like gross negligence because she's just a nice looking lady she just looks fine so i was thinking about that with his case where Mm -hmm. he very clearly started taking advantage of that and Mm -hmm. i think her going unchecked probably would have gone in the same direction Mm -hmm. but like he clearly was you know kind of a victim of the uh that whole thing that happens with like gifted and talented kids where they're like told they're so good when they're so young and Uh then they kind of like it's i feel like it's not a real thing it's something that we kind of tell ourselves like but then they plateau and they don't work they don't reach hard for things after that but really honestly like you can do anything you're capable of anything like Mm -hmm. that's your 
get your feet out of the mud. You got this. Like, it's mm-hmm. fine. Like, you're capable of anything as much as anyone else is, no matter how much they told you your reading level was, like, fifth grade when you were four. You know, whatever mm-hmm. it is. It doesn't matter. Um, But I feel like there's this interesting thing about people plateauing after that and how he was just kind of a very mediocre, run-of-the-mill kind of guy. Because mm-hmm. um, clearly he wasn't, like, the best doctor either. He just had the title. Yeah, I mean, yeah. he he knew all the latest techniques. I mean, he did well in school, so mm-hmm. he was a, he was actually a good doctor. Mm-hmm. But, like, that, the one guy said, the most remarkable thing about him was that he wasn't remarkable. Right. He was just another guy. And, like, uh, I'll have pictures and stuff, too, to show you guys. We'll post it on the Instagram. And he just looks like a nice, nice old man. Yeah. There's nothing I mean, weird about him. He looks fine. So I mean, but BTK never BTK also just looks like a dad, you yeah. know? Yeah. Like, and he was. And he was. He just was a dad, and she didn't know until her. Anyways. Yeah, we'll get that. That's all. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> but, yeah, that's, like, you can't, you just can't, obviously, never judge a book by its cover. Yeah. But also, uh, I think my final sip is uh, double-check everything. If you are, like, the part of another process of something happening, like, if you're a part of paperwork or something like that, like, if, like, I understand there's a lot of paperwork to do, there's a lot of things to grade, there's a lot of stuff to do, I get it, data entry sucks, and when something at the end of that line fucks up, you're implicated, bitch, (laughs) like, Mm -hmm. (laughs) you gotta cross Mm -hmm. your T's and dot your I's, like, because that's, you're the one that could catch something that's really messed up that's no one's getting at, or Mm -hmm. you could be somebody that is could be the difference between someone losing their mom yeah. or their, you know, their grandma or their and aunts. Then, you know? And then, wait, I have a final drip also of, like, one <laughs> more little drop. Yeah, yeah. Like, in, and be, we all have to be our own, like, advocate yes. for our health. Yeah. And if you can't be, like, you, you know, we all need to have somebody who can be and not someone of the state. We'll talk about that movie one day anyway. That's terrible. Like, caregivers and whatever. Not the caregivers. Uh, the, the ones where they, like, uh, you become basically a ward of the state at your old age and then they take over for you and they, and they tell everyone what to do with your will like if you don't have a a family member to do it they appoint someone for you and then a lot of those people were just stealing everyone's money power of attorney yeah and it's anyway that's a whole other tangent but like make sure that there is someone there that can be an advocate for you and speak up for you and see Mm -hmm. what's actually going on and do that you're right and do that at an age like we will have an episode at some point about death and like honest like you no matter how old you are death is a really scary thing but it's really smart to put things in place before you're incapable of doing it right so that you have your own back so that you have the back of your family and loved ones and stuff like it's just good to do that like Mm -hmm. living wills are a thing and that's okay because like we are all going to die sorry Mm -hmm. but you have to it's what what you do with it is you take care of the people that are going to still be living afterwards Mm -hmm. yeah is what's really important that's what you can control yeah Yeah. um my final sip is this trauma does a lot to a person and when you don't find actual healthy ways to deal with trauma there is no telling what will happen you could go on and be just fine or you could go on and continuously recreate the trauma in a form of comfort And I think that's what the case was here. And in his mixed-up mind, he was finding comfort by doing a terrible, terrible, terrible action. I mean, that doesn't even even properly describe how fucking terrible the entire action is. He put himself in a position that people would trust. They automatically trust the doctor. Mm -hmm. You trust your doctor. Mm -hmm. And you might be scared to go to the doctor, but you ultimately want to trust 
that what you're doing is in your best interest and what they're going to do is in your best interest. We all know from experience that you need to advocate for yourself in the doctor's office because sometimes you're not listened to. Mm -hmm. But especially in this case where it's just old ladies who even get dressed up for his visits. It's heartbreaking and incredibly sad. And I wish things would have gone differently. And I wish that trauma back then and even now was approached with with treatment and care and not just brushed off and, and move, move on and like get over it mindset. You know, I, I don't excuse his actions. I just believe that things would have been different if there had been a positive influence right when it started and caught it before it turned into this horrible, disgusting mess. I don't know. I don't know if it would have really made a difference, but I mean, the opportunity wasn't even there, so we'll never know. I mean, if, if you or someone you know is going through a difficult time, it is okay to seek help. It is okay to talk about it. It is okay to feel your feelings and take time to heal. Find your safe space and allow yourself to go through what you need to do to heal. I am incredibly saddened by those families and they'll never have the answers that they want or deserve because he took it all with him. And it's in incredible that they, they paved the way for change, but that should have happened a long time ago. It's better late than never, I guess, but still. And the memorial is a beautiful sentiment. It doesn't change what happened, but it at least created a beautiful place to honor those that were lost. And that's my final sip. That's a good final sip. <sighs> and final sip to start the season. Season two, guys! We're Thanks. back! Yay! We're back! We're back! Thank you so much for joining us for our first episode of season two on Morning Murders! Thank you for listening to Morning Murders. Remember to stop by every Monday for a new episode. And you can always check out our resources and mental health links in our show notes. If you enjoyed listening to our highly caffeinated conversation, please leave us a five-star rating and check us out on Instagram at Morning Murders. That's at M-O-U-R-N-I-N-G-M-U-R-D-E-R-S. If you have any stories you'd like to hear discuss around the breakfast nook, email us at morningmurders at gmail.com. Thank you for listening! Yeah, he doesn't have a monocle. Even in the 19-whatever <laughs> right? version. The, that that's the was... peanut. Mr. Peanut has the monocle. Yeah. He's got the top hat and the coat with the with the tails uh -huh. and a big mustache, but no, monocle? no monocle. Not even in like the old like first version of the box. So look at my box. It's the special edition. My box this is the monocle edition. Do either one Sorry. of them have monocles? <laughs> you don't know. I, when I feel fancy. <laughs> when I feel fancy, it's got all kinds of stuff. It's my wedding night. I have to have my I'm vagina monocle. Gonna have the vagina monocle. The monocles. The vagina the monocles. Vagina monocles. It's the vagina monocle. It's the fanciest uh, one. Uh, well, I never. I never. <laughs> Buffy, do you believe? <laughs> Why haven't you named your vagina Buffy? Yeah, I mean, I Muffy like is more... Muffy! <laughs> but, ah, yeah. but Buffy sounds correct. Buffy. Name your vagina Buffy. Well, this something... What's your vagina's name? Slayer. I don't know. There was a dick joke in there, but I'm, I haven't had enough coffee yet. <laughs> <laughs> Too bad he's gotta die. Uh, <laughs> for me to live on. <laughs>
we need more content, so yeah, it's that, true. Yeah, so you're welcome. Make, make your own, own content. Again. You're welcome. Make ladies. your own content. I keep getting told to write my own stuff. So has that Lifetime movie come out yet of the lady that murders people for her podcast? No. Oh, I just imagine that's gonna be one of those like Lifetime or Netflix movies. <laughs> yeah, let's write it. She was the killer the whole time. Just so that she had something to talk about on her true crime podcast. I mean, they do say that serial killers like to get involved. Mm-hmm. It's true. I mean, firefighters set fires. You know, <laughs> Spider-Man. He, Spider-Man wrote about himself, right? Spider-Man bites He took pictures people. of him. <laughs> he took pictures of himself. Yeah, he was the original OnlyFans. He was Spider-Man's OnlyFans. <laughs> he was his OnlyFans. Yeah. Amen. He was like... Give me more pictures of Spider-Man. Give me more what pictures of Spider-Man. Give me more pictures of his dummy thick ass. <laughs> All right. Now kiss me upside down with a ray. Change him to Jameson. Upside down with a ray. This is the commissioner. He's got the and he's got the fucking. I love it. Okay, I'm here for it. <laughs> So keep that vision, keep that with you. Who's that actor that's, he's always, he's the... Commissioner Gordon? uh, No, no, Commissioner Gordon um, is Or are you talking about the the head of the newspaper? Yeah, the the daily... (laughs) Oh, yeah. The daily bullshit. The daily... It's J. Jonah Jameson, but I don't know who the actor is that played him. (sighs) J. Jonah Jameson. (laughs) (laughs) I love it. Good bloops to you all. Oh my gosh. Uh, and so a really fun new blooper material. And a good so bloop excited. to you all. And a good bloop to you bloop. all. We're back. Yeah. <laughs> this mm. is what they're really here for. We're back and backer than ever. Backer than what? ever. <laughs> what? Yeah. <laughs> We're back and wow, backer than ever. <laughs> Start off season two with a bang, I see. <laughs> I brought all my best material today, you guys. <laughs> Oh my gosh. Oh my goodness gracious. Nicolas. 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 Amanda. A man, a duck, duck, a donkey, a man, and a cola banana. Cola banana, Consent. Knees. That's important. Consent yeah. is important. It's important. You really need it. Oh. Oh, get the fuck out. <laughs> <laughs> I'll see you guys later. Are you gonna snore? The pun force. You can't snore then you can't do that. She also picked. Uh, uh, she also picked who he. Who he blah, 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 blah. Pethid, pethidine. 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 I'm gonna say that. Pethidine. My, it's been so long since the season break, I didn't know what order we were going in anymore. <laughs> okay. 